Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Data Wisconsin versus Kyle second count of the information, Richard McGinnis. We, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. As to the third count of the information, unknown male, we, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. As to the fourth count of the information, Anthony Huber, we, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. As to the fifth count of the information, Gage Grosskreutz, we, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, Rittenhouse, not guilty. Hey, everybody. Welcome into another episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saveri. On the program today, the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict was deliberated on and came in on Friday. Nick and I are going to break it all down. Plus, later on in the program, a salute to a few good reporters that have done some fantastic work and have been on this program, breaking down different topics for us. More on that later on. But first, before I say hello to Nick, a new episode of the Check the Stats podcast is out. I sit down with former director of analytics for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Tyler Oberly. He takes us in how he used to use stats to help the Buccaneers draft players like Levante David and some other funny stories of Dirk Cutter saying, hey, I don't get this analytics stuff. So check the stats is available wherever you get your podcast. Go check out that show. Nick, how's, how's that? It worked out so well for Cutter, too. Right. You know, he's yeah. still in the league. Wait, oh, hold on a second. Yeah, yeah. you're right. You're right. Well, you know, it's funny. Check out the episode. I want to keep promoting my own show. But uh, he mentions how Dirk Cutter in the episode, the the quote that was attributed to him about, I don't trust these data nerds. It's actually not what he said to him off the thing. Like, like, you know, in the building, he kind of understood the analytics part of it, but he kept getting asked it so much that at one point he was just kind of like, I don't care about numbers. Uh, Anyway, to our program, Nick, how are you feeling? I'm good, man. It's, I'll be honest, it's been interesting, just the different back and forths about the, about the verdict, um, just group texts I'm a part of and, um, yeah, I kind of just trying to make sense of it. So well, I'm excited yeah. we're having this conversation and get to share it with our, you know, with our audience. Well, listen, let's get right into it because you and I actually taped, um, the day before the verdict was rendered, we thought we would get a little bit more clarity as we headed into the following week. Now that the verdict was in, you heard it at the top of the program here, Kyle Rittenhouse was found not guilty. 
on all of five charges that were brought against them in the shooting in connection with two murders and, and an assault on another person that was there. Um, there was a couple lesser charges that were also dropped prior to um, the actual defense and prosecution closing arguments. And those charges uh, were obviously a minor possessing a gun. And there was a minor law in Wisconsin um, that, you know, Rittenhouse was not subjected to. So the the defense team argued that he, it, although it was a misdemeanor that was only punishable by like maximum nine months in jail. Um, before closing arguments, the defense made a motion to ta- toss out that weapons charge. So that got dropped. And a lot of people felt he may have got hit with that charge because he was a minor in possession of a gun. Um, in Wisconsin, but minors, uh, there's an exception in the law that minors are allowed to possess shotguns and rifles as long as they're not short barreled. This was like a very minor <laughs> statute. Unless you live in Wisconsin, you wouldn't know this, but a lot of people didn't understand why that charge got dropped. So um, not guilty on all five verdicts. I want to play real quick um, some of the, the the trial itself, because it was a super interesting trial. Nick and I are going to break it all down. Take a listen to the closing arguments by both the prosecution and defense teams. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no doubt in this case that the defendant committed these crimes. He committed a first-degree reckless homicide against Joseph Rosenbaum. He put Richie McGinnis's life in jeopardy. He put Jump Kick Man's life in jeopardy. He intended to kill Anthony Huber, and he attempted to kill Gage Grosskreutz. All of those elements are true. The question is whether or not you believe actions legally justified. And I admit to you that no reasonable person would have done what the defendant did. And that makes your decision easy. He is guilty of all counts. Kyle Rittenhouse shot Mr. Rosenbaum because he was attacking Kyle. Every person who was shot was attacking Kyle. One with a skateboard, one with his hands, one with his feet, one with a gun. Hands, feet can cause great bodily harm. All right, Nick. So, you know, Friday afternoon, the jury deliberated for about three and a half days on this. Um, They came back not guilty on all five counts. So clearly they felt that uh, Kyle Rittenhouse was was acting in self-defense. There was a lot of video evidence, obviously, of um, drone footage of the first person that he shot footage of him running away and people yelling at him that, Hey, you just shot somebody. Then we see the footage of a man trying to hit him or, or at least hitting him in the back of a head. Another person trying to hit him with a skateboard while he's on the ground, the gunshots to both of those guys, another person pulling a gun on Rittenhouse, but not necessarily pointing at him. There was so much made about this in the trial. And obviously we never got to see what the jury actually looked like or what the jury pool was made up of. We were told by reporters, but give me your, some of your takes about uh, the verdict in Wisconsin. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, per, per the laws there, um, per what you know, Rittenhouse was you know, tried, tried to be found guilty of. Yeah. The jurors decided that, that wasn't the case. You know, Mike, again, and, and you and I are both not lawyers, you know, where I land on this is that I guess, you know, according to the laws of Wisconsin, this is allowable. A person is able to have access to a machine gun. That's obviously not another conversation entirely, but is able to go down to be among a group of people that he thinks are rioters or whatever story he told himself um, while brandishing a, a machine gun and can feel then threatened and then shoot someone. Somehow in the series of all these activities, that's all against these counts all allowed basically everything he did doesn't break any laws in the state of wisconsin that's that just tells me everything it yeah. certainly tells me i would be a little suspect of you know hanging around you know some of these major cities in wisconsin in the midst of a protest because there's a possibility that i may get shot well, let me let me someone feels threatened let me let me jump in there real quick it it i'm trying i want to put this in human terms when we had dr curtin on we're talking about systemic racism. If you remember, I made the analogy of put a face to it. Think about where I grew up when I was under 14 in the Bronx, what was around the area, the education system, and then where I moved to 45 minutes later with white people around and the school education system. If we think about it in that context, when was the last time you were at a protest and you saw individual group of people 
with machine gun rifles standing there, not not police officers, no badges, right? Protecting a building. Like if you saw something like that in your town, how would you react? I'm, I'm talking now to yeah, the audience I mean, that's listening to that. Like, please sure. email us at can we please talk back as a gmail.com. Unless, unless you live in some part of this world that I don't know of where <laughs> that's normal to you, where a, a normal citizen that doesn't live in that town anymore can just go over there and say, I'm going to defend this building. That means nothing to me, property wise, value wise. Like I, that's the part that I'm having a tough time well, with. And that's, that's yeah. That's that's where I think the right has now turned this argument is it's not so much about opposing the um, the view of those protesting, because, I mean, that's that's a hard sell to say that I, you know, in I stand in opposition to someone's protest of the shooting of Jacob Blake. That's a hard thing to sell. But you can sell. Hey, don't come in here and, you know, allegedly damage these buildings, because that's what I'm going to come here and fight about. You know, that tangibility of that argument of, you know, I am so worried about my community being harmed by these protesters. And again, notice the myth making we're doing here. Suddenly we're taking protesters and we're saying, well, they're rioters or looters and all this stuff. And in some cases, that is true. Like you've seen property damage against this. So you have someone like Rittenhouse who is so compelled to protect his neighborhood or a neighborhood that he has some familiarity with that he comes to town with a machine gun ready to protect it. Um that's stunning to me. Yeah, now, I, I mean, I've been to a protest not too long ago with my before my our, our second child was born. And it was a Black Lives Matter protest in our, our town of Maplewood, New Jersey, where I lived before. You know, it's just a community gathering. You know, people come together and making a statement that, you know, police brutality against African-Americans needs to stop. But to be fair, if I had seen some people there hanging around with a machine gun and me with my family, we're going home. Yeah, it's the same thing. You know, it's funny. I'm, I'm thinking of everything that we taped prior to the verdict. And I mentioned something there um, that my wife and I were in DC uh, a few weeks back and there was a protest for what's happening in Myanmar. You know, obviously we know the military coup that's happened there and almost tried here, um, but the military coup that's happened there and there's been killings there and there was a huge gathering, peaceful protest. But again, same thing right outside of the Capitol. If I saw armed citizens with, again, you saw the way Rittenhouse was dressed. It's just a light green T-shirt and and a machine gun with some, you know, like latex gloves. Like you see that I'm I'm out there. I'm out of there, too. Just like you said. So I think people let's get into because you just said something there about the politicization of this. Right. And the right and left. I want to play a clip from Mark before Richards. You, yeah, before okay. you play that clip, I, I did want to bring up an imp- important point. So you and I both acknowledge that if we'd gone to a protest and we had saw someone or people arriving with machine guns, we leave. But then doesn't that tell you that isn't then the purpose of these people with machine guns not to protect the property, but to basically in a nonverbal way, scare us from you know, being able to execute our First Amendment, right? I couldn't agree more. I mean, I'm a, we both just, again, I don't want to speak in generalities, but we both just said we'd be intimidated by that because we don't have guns. I'm not, I'm not as soon as I see at a peaceful protest, somebody that is not an identified police officer with machinery like that, I'm out of there. I think we all have that natural inclination of saying, I need to get out of here. But look, I want to get into the polarization of this because this is at the crux of this. Okay. Kyle Rittenhouse, the law has spoken. The law has said that he was acting in self-defense. We have to accept that verdict. Even President Biden came out the other day and said, I accept the verdict. Now, look, we can speak about how emboldened now you're going to see other people be able to carry out some of this stuff. And we're going to see if this will carry over to different states because you see the Ahmed Aubrey case is playing out right now. Same thing. Three guys that were protecting their town's property, trying to make a citizen's arrest on a guy who's jogging. And they're claiming the same thing, self-defense, even though they were chasing him with the gun. So we'll see how that case plays out more on that in the coming weeks as, as we get more into deliberations and, and a verdict there. But the politicization of this, Tucker Carlson's camera crew, and I should, full disclosure, I, I know Tucker Carlson's senior producer really well. Her and I worked together uh, once upon a time back at Fox. Um, they added, Tucker Carlson obviously has a, uh, an originals program on Fox Nation. Okay, that's uh, Fox News' streaming service, and you can sign up and, and watch all of this extra content from all these guys and gals. Um, but he had a camera crew embedded with Kyle Rittenhouse 
for the entirety of the trial. A lot of people did not know this, except obviously the two attorneys for Kyle Rittenhouse. Mark Richards was recently on a CNN with Chris Cuomo, and he got asked about the camera crew and you know them being embedded and then a video being released almost moments after the verdicts were found not guilty by Tucker Carlson's team and by Fox News team to kind of promote this new show. Take a listen to what he said. Word that you guys had uh, a film crew embedded with you uh, from Fox News, from Tucker Carlson. I want to know why why that decision was made. I did not approve of that. I threw him out of the room several times. They were, and I'm not suggesting that Fox or some other network. I don't think a film crew is appropriate um, for something like this. But the people who were raising the money to pay for the experts and to pay for the attorneys um, were trying to raise money, and that was part of it. Um, so I think I don't want to say an evil, but a definite distraction was part of it, um, and. I didn't approve of it, but I'm not always the boss. Who were the people who were paying? The people who were raising money. It was This defense was crowdfunded through right. donations. But who were the people making the calls about who got to have access to the process? Kyle's family and his advisor. Or were you worried that your client was becoming an agent of animus. You know, I mean, Fox News is one thing. I used to work there. Uh, Tucker Carlson is a different animal. You know what he means in the political dialogue. Um, were you worried that Rittenhouse was going to become kind of a stooge of that fringe of our political spectrum? I, I had a talk with Kyle. You know, all I can say is what I say. Um, and Kyle's going to have some hard choices in his life about the direction he goes and what he stands for. Um, those will have to be made by Kyle um, eventually. And as Corey and I told him yesterday while we were waiting alone for the verdict, he needs to learn how to take responsibility and to tell people no. So listen, um, wow. I had a bunch of different, yeah, it's, it's pretty moving stuff. I had a bunch of different emotions here. Uh, Chris Cuomo, obviously a former Fox News uh, anchor. A lot of people don't know that, by the way. Um, and this is why I'm, I'm, I've gotten more upset about the politicization, if I'm using that term correctly. I've gotten more upset about that than the actual verdict. Because, and and this is kind of, I'm, I'm glad that you and I were able to re-record some of this because um, when I hear something like that, and then I see, you know, Tucker Carlson release that video afterwards. What happens now is similar to what we've talked about in this program. When Anderson Cooper says Donald Trump is like, a, you know, an obese turtle on his back, right? Where is he now, Nick? He is now on the liberal leaning side, right? There's no coming back. We already kind of thought it, but there's no coming back now because you've just interjected yourself. Kyle Rittenhouse now, there's no coming back from doing a show on Tucker Carlson's platform on Fox News. I think we can all agree with that. We know now politically where Kyle Rittenhouse will lean. We know now where his followers will lean. We probably knew that already through the trial, but this is like the final touchdown round. Now, now the score is cemented. You know, we just covered. So the problem I have with that is, and similar to what his attorney said, it's not appropriate. And you heard Chris ask him there, like, do you feel like, your 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 kid's now going to be an agent of animus, right? And it is true. Now Kyle Rittenhouse will be the poster for the right-wing section of this country. And again, you're allowed to be a conservative. You're allowed to be a Democrat, moderate, whatever it is you want to be. You got, but, but to take this kid as your, you know, uh, your martyr for this, for stand your ground, for, you know, number rule number two, amendment number two, right? Having a gun. To use this kid as that is the same thing you you kill the left for when using other people. Like it's it's the same thing. If you don't notice hypocrisy on both sides of this, you're part of the problem. And that's my problem now with this. I've I've over the last couple of days that we saw the verdict come in on Friday, and you and I have been texting back and forth about you know the need to redo this episode entirely. Uh, you know, I saw that come out, and, and you know, I got moved to emotion because it's like now I didn't feel bad for Kyle before obviously, right? Two, two people lost their lives. One other person got shot. He shouldn't have been there. 
I think we can all agree a 17 year old with access to a gun that he he shouldn't have defending a property that he doesn't own in a town that he doesn't live in anymore. That's on you. Like you shouldn't have been there. It's fruit of the poisonous tree. You should not have been there that night. We can all agree on that. Kyle Rittenhouse is not a police officer. He said he was. He said he did ride-alongs with EMTs because he wanted to be an EMT. Cool. You can be an EMT when you go to school and become one. You are not one. So he was not any of these things. He should not have been there that night. Now, now he has cemented himself as a figure. He'll be at CPAC for the rest of his life now because he has to be. There's no going back. I said this on one of the Fox News episodes that we did. I forget it was either Mike Emanuel on or when we were talking about the media. Sean Hannity tomorrow comes out on his show at 9.05, and he says, Biden's doing a great job with this Build Back Better agenda. That's it. Sean's gone. That's it. That, that siphon of the audience that was coming in, there's no turning back from that. And now Kyle Rittenhouse, there's no turning back from that. His lawyer just alluded to it that he's going to make some tough decisions. It's too late. He already, he already cemented that decision by now being on Fox Nation and being on a Tucker Carlson original. Again, and I want to stress this, like Chris Cuomo said, Fox News is one thing. It's one thing to be on with Bill Hammer and Dana Pero at 9 a.m. It's one thing to be on at one o'clock with John Roberts. It, it's one thing to be on as Fox News Live at one o'clock with Mike Emanuel. Those are news people. It's another thing to embed yourself with Tucker Carlson. It's another when everyone when everyone who used to work there goes, Mm-mm, not that one, not that one. That's when you know it's wrong. Like, come on, man. Like, I, I, it, that was the most frustrating thing to me. I know there's other parts to this and there are people going to lean on white supremacy and the, his affiliation with the Proud Boys. Pull, that, that, that's great. That's I mean, not great. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, that's that is one part of this. The big thing that I took away from this now is that now Kyle Rittenhouse is going to be this poster boy for all of these right wing Second Amendment loving gun nuts because because their champion, Tucker Carlson just did an original series with him and let's get to the truth. And like, that's my part of the problem as somebody who used to work there at Fox news, somebody that I really enjoyed my time there. You know, you know, me, you know, this because Mike Emanuel has been like, you know, if you ever want to come back and help produce here, you know, like he's, he's invited me back. Like I, I would, I would go back there for him, but like, that's the problem. Like it's ruining the rest of the organization and and the rest of what you know the Murdoch family is standing for, and I now now it's it's made me like really up, upset, man. Like that, like I don't know why the, seeing that him do a thing, he could have done something on YouTube on his own, right? Just you know the Kyle Rittenhouse, and he sells his story to like an ABC News or whatever. That's fine. Those are part and parcel, right? You know, Casey Anthony, you go to any famous trial, they sell their rights, they do interviews. I totally get that, but you do it with that guy. Right after, I'm sorry, man. You you cannot defend that. His lawyer, his own lawyer, even said you can't defend that. Go ahead, Nick. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I won't. I won't defend it. I guess what I would say is that you know here you are, you know, feeling as though that no one's hearing your story. That um, you don't feel vindicated in any way, nor should you. I mean, you have no business going down with a machine gun, uh, and you know, to a protest and doing that. But here's someone who approaches you and says that everything you did was right. You know, you are in the right here. And I, as a powerful member of the media, can help make sure your story is being told, right? And all it will cost you is a little bit of time and space. I'm going to have my people hang out, hang around you. It's going to be okay. Kai, we're going to make sure we got you because the rest of the world, they don't. That selling trick is what Tucker probably did is the ability to tell this person, hey, no one wants to hear your story. We do. But the funny thing is, that's not true. If on Monday, if Rittenhouse's people want to start talking, like put themselves out there and say, hey, listen, we'll talk to any media outlet. Every media outlet in America will give them space. You don't think Diane Sawyer's not going to talk to this guy? Oprah? Everyone's on the table. But Tucker did a brilliant job of turning around and saying, listen, no one's going to believe your story except me. And that's that's some cultish shit there, honestly. But I agree with you because we talked about Tucker before. Do I believe that Tucker believes everything he says on television? I don't actually, because this version, what we've seen from him continues to lean further and further to the right because the volume and the energy and the money keeps climbing the further right he goes. 
because there's a segment of people, all of which you all folks saw in Charlottesville back in 2017, that need this, that love this. And Tucker knows the money's too good. And Mike, you said it dead on at the, a few moments ago. Hannity comes on and owns the fact that Build Back Better is probably a, good, a pretty good plan. His audience is gone. And if the audience is gone, folks, your ads are gone. Your advertisers are gone. And if your advertisers are gone, you're out of a job. And if you're out of a job, who's paying for that house? Who's, who's making sure there's money you know, for your family, right? Like you don't want to, you're not ready to just piss it all away because that's the right thing to do. So no, you will perpetuate the lie, which is no different. And I, well, I'm not even going to get into the former president, but you sometimes have to perpetuate a myth hard in order to make sure that the money stays coming, that to make sure that the your presence is still felt. Like Tucker's got to stay on. You can't, you got to fight on that lie now. <laughs> if I'm going to quote Slim Charles <laughs> from right. The Wire. Um, but that's that's where we are now. And yeah, that's the deal that Kyle made. And I agree with you. I mean, now that you now he's made this deal, I would think it would be hard to walk that back and recognize you just you're just getting used. Yeah. You know, I funny enough, I I have nothing, I have no agreement whatsoever with what Rittenhouse did. Am I sympathetic to the concept that a person out there feels that his community may be under threat and I have to go do something about it? I'm willing to hear that. If I were Rittenhouse's friend, if I was talking to him, I would have said, hey, you going with a gun makes you a magnet for trouble. I would want to have that conversation with him. And if he goes anyway, then it tells me that you actually were courting trouble. And the fact that that's okay by the, in the eyes of the law as measured by these five counts in the trial says a lot about you know the laws in Wisconsin. Um, yeah, I, I have no sympathy for Rittenhouse, but I'm willing to hear the story a little bit more. Um, but once you've decided that you're just going to let Tucker Carlson be the person who tells your story. Right. Then you have lost me. Now, you, now you've lost a lot of people. You know, you make a great point there. I'm thinking about the town I grew up in where I went to high school. If, if tomorrow you know, there was some big police shooting that happened there. And again, as a person of color, and I felt a certain way about it, and there were protests that were happening there, is my first inclination to say, more, I really need to protect that deli that I used to go to as a kid, like back in high school, like with a gun and like latex gloves. And I, I don't need to protect that deli. That's what cops and firefighters are for, unfortunately. Uh, not unfortunately, fortunately. Um, and so I, that part of it is like, if you can't get through your head that this kid was 17 years old, pretending to be an EMT to help medical services, carrying a gun that he's not licensed for, right? In a state, and again, he's in Illinois. He went to Wisconsin. Like he, he doesn't live there. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. A lot of people have been tweeting about the mother dropping him off. And I, I don't even know about that part. I'm not sure if that part was brought into, uh, into evidence in the trial or not. But regardless of that, my first inclination when I was 17 years old and something was happening in my town was to turn on my TV and watch, not necessarily to go out there, pick up a gun and stand a post to quote a few good men. I want to get into real quick the judge, the judge. Uh, I want to play some of his greatest hits because this judge was getting eviscerated on Twitter by a lot of different people. And there was a lot of back and forth between him and the prosecutors. There was some choice statements that he made about Asian cuisine, black people. Let's play a little bit from the judge uh, in this case, Bruce Schroeder. The word victim is a loaded, loaded word. And I think alleged victim is a cousin to it. Let the evidence show what the evidence shows, and if the evidence shows that any or more than one of these people were engaged in, in arson, rioting, or looting, then I'm not going to tell the defense they can't call them that. Why would you think that that made it okay for you, without any advance notice, to bring this matter before the jury? You are already, you were, I, I was... A, astonished when you began your examination by commenting on the defendant's post-arrest silence. That's basic law. It's been basic law in this country for 40 years, 50 years. I have no idea why you would do something like that. And it gives, um, uh, well, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, I had made a ruling that the evidence wasn't coming in, and you decided that it was. I, I, if I could just respond to that briefly, Your Honor, I was about to say, 
I did not interpret your ruling as an absolute. We, we've had three state motions in the <coughs> There was one in which we asked the court to introduce evidence that the defendant was at Pudgy's Bar with Proud Boys, and you were clear that is not coming in. There was. You know, don't get into other subjects. Get it. Get, come on, what you're telling me, you're an experienced trial attorney, and you're telling me that when the judge says, I'm excluding this, you just to take it upon yourself to put it in because you think that you've found a way around it? Come on. This is my good faith explanation to you. And if you want to yell at me, you can. My good faith feeling this morning after watching that testimony was you had left the door open a little bit. Now we had something new, and I was going to probe it. I don't believe you. All right. Anything else? What time do you want to spend? Uh, let's hope for one o'clock. I don't know. The uh, hope the Asian food isn't coming. It's on. Isn't on one of those boats in Long uh, Long Beach Harbor. Um, but let's uh, aim for one o'clock. You know, Nick. I was I was texting Ellie Honig. Yep, I'm going to name drop here. Um, there it is. There it is. And Ellie, obviously the former uh, DOJ prosecutor who's been on this program a couple of times, Rutgers guy like us. And he was about to go on CNN. And I, I had asked him just kind of like, listen, I know you're busy. Have you, and this was, I think this was the first time that first clip where the, where he yells at the, at the prosecutor, I was like, have you ever seen a judge yell at a prosecutor for like two minutes? I'm talking like straight up. You don't know the law, like that kind of verbiage and just yelling at him. And he, he wrote back, look, it's not uncommon, but. Yeah, that was pretty, pretty intense. And then as I'm seeing other things play out in this, right, where he had Kyle Rittenhouse sit next to him to show him some footage or something like that, he lets Rittenhouse pick out who will be the jury pool deliberating on it, which is normally a court clerk's task, even though that's mundane, but it's still a little weird to let the defendant pick out who's going to be the jury and who will be the alternates. Um, as the Chicago Sun-Times tweeted, like, this is very uncommon for a judge to allow somebody to do that. You, you know, some of these things. And then there was one big thing the judge did as well, coming back one day after a break, complaining about the coverage that he was getting on CNN and saying that Jeffrey Tubin, the CNN legal analyst, if you all remember, took his pants off on a Zoom call, great there, um, that he he didn't know the Wisconsin law properly and that the judge knew it. I, I never seen a judge argue and we had Ron Filipkowski on the show, and he was a former federal prosecutor and state prosecutor in Florida. He was tweeting, "I never seen this." Kim Whaley, had, you know, who, who the the former U.S. assistant attorney that's been on this show, she was tweeting about it, and she went on a couple of the different news shows talking about it. What What are some of your takes about the judge here? Because I know you said something. There was something that was really impactful with you uh, about the victims part of this. Yeah, I, I mean, first, I, I think the people you've all mentioned you know, are really trusted voices, you know, in, in legal analysis. And that's the only kind of people we bring on the show, right? Um, I think it's telling that a lot of red flags came up for them, you know, as the judge, um, you know, was, I don't know if this is even the right word, but officiating this trial, right? Overseeing the trial or whatever. Um, but I think that so many things came up for these folks. It's very telling about the judge. And it, it ultimately would tell me that the judge made this case in many ways about a statement that he wanted to make to the rest of the country. You know, like when a person is talking about how they're being covered by the media, and then at some point turns around and says, you know, I'm going to question whether I want to keep cameras in the courtroom. Well, so you recognize you're a celebrity, but you're trying to say that you don't want to be a celebrity. Right. It's, it's ridiculous. Like it was this. You're choosing your words very carefully. This is an individual who knows He's being featured on television and is playing up to it. I, I there's no there's no other explanation to that. I mean, and I and I've said bef- I said this in previous recording, but um, I truly believe at some point that this judge was trying to make sure that this case was going to be a fair trial. Um, I truly believe that this was an individual who was going to make wanted to make sure that both the prosecution and the defense were going to play this case straight. But where immediately the first thing that came, that just startled me was the argument of semantics early in the case. You know, the fact that we're not going to refer to people who've been shot as victims. You know, we can use other words to describe them, but victims is considered a loaded word. This is from the same judge who later on talked about the intelligence of jurors 
saying that the intelligence of jurors is something that we just are forgetting and we don't consider them as intelligent. But apparently they're intelligent enough, but you can't let them hear a word such as victims because that may cloud their judgment. Right. So then I would question how intelligent you actually think the jurors are. Um, yeah, ultimately, I think the judge made this case about himself, but I also think too that um, this is a case where you know all these counts come up and the jury looks against you know these um you know these charges and says like this doesn't work. And I mean again, like it's it's hard for me to not see the role potential that race plays here. Um, even how the judge may have treated Kyle Rittenhouse if Kyle Rittenhouse happened to be black. Um, but again, that's all speculation and that's not the place here. But what I would say simply about the judge is that I think in the end, he made this case a fair deal about himself um, in an effort to what I thought began with the pursuit of trying to ensure a fair trial, but then ultimately began to be his really railing against um, legal analysis you know, in America and, and, you know, trying to be sort of a lone legal voice fighting, you know, the, the, the mass media or all these legal analysts who talked about them. Right. Um, and if that's where your focus is, then it truly isn't actually about being on the bench and about ensuring a fair trial. It's actually you trying to fight some proxy battle with people on television. And that would make me in isolation question, how much should I trust you as being, a, as being the person who, who officiates or oversees this trial? Listen, I'm not into conspiracy theories. We're going to have somebody on the program in the coming weeks about that. But when I see a judge, like you said, semantics of wordplay, we're not going to call them victims. Uh, when I see him uh, tell, you know, yell at the prosecutor several different times, um, when I see him, even in the first clip that we played here from the greatest hits, it looked like he wanted to say, and that leaves the door open to potentially a mistrial, but that would have given the perception of that hey, he's actually helping the defense here to, to tell them what they could have done. When I see him make the jury stand for a defendant who served in this country and applaud, like, again, legal analysts, again, we're not lawyers. Legal analysts have been in courtroom for years are saying, I never seen that. Look, we thank that person for their service, but that's not the time. You, you, you want to give this impartiality. Um, however you feel about the case, email us, can we please talk podcast at gmail.com. However you feel about this case, um, it is now settled. Okay, Kyle Rittenhouse is not guilty on these five charges. It leaves the door open, obviously, for a larger conversation of this entitlement that, that, that certain white people feel about being able to go to a town you don't live in anymore of doesn't matter what age, and I can get my hands on a gun, and I can go protect some property that I don't own. Um, it's, it's, it's very telling. There's a couple other trials that are happening, the, civ the civil trial that's happening in Charlottesville. Um, with, with respect to what happened there in the protest in 2017, we got uh, another trial with the Ahmed Aubrey case coming up. So we're going to have another legal, legal analyst coming on in the coming weeks to take us through all that. When we come back after the break, we're going to pay a little homage to three reporters who have been on this program talking about three issues that have really been front and center in the political news sphere. More on that when we come back after the break. Today's episode is presented by Stamps.com. Since 1998, Stamps.com has been an indispensable tool for nearly 1 million businesses. Nick, Stamps.com? I love it. I love Stamps.com. Not so big a fan of the post office. To be clear, love the postal workers, but I just the whole service just doesn't work for me, man. I need to get my stamps. I need to have a way to get them quickly, get them onto my envelopes and out the door. So Stamps.com has always been helpful for that. Boy, hopefully the U.S. Postal Service is not listening to this because <laughs> if you guys remember in the 90s about postal service workers, anyway, Stamps.com brings the services of that U.S. Postal Service and UPS shipping right to your computer. Whether you're an office sending invoices, a side hustle, Etsy shop, a full-blown warehouse shipping out order, Stamps.com will make your life easier. All you need is a computer and a standard printer. Nick and I record on a computer and I got a printer sitting right next to me. No special supplies or equipment within minutes you're up and running printing official package for any letter package anywhere you want to send it and you'll get exclusive discounts on postage and shipping from USPS and the UPS. Uh, once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup and drop it off. No traffic, no lines, save time and money with stamps.com. Head to their page right now, stamps.com. Enter the promo code POD. You're going to get a special offer that includes a four week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com. Click on that microphone, type in POD, and never go to that post office again. Nick, the other day I was um, listening to um, Offline 
with John Favreau, the former speechwriter for President Obama. He had Peter Hamby on the program. If you don't know who Peter Hamby is, he's the host of Good Luck America on Snapchat, uh, former CNN correspondent, uh, worked for a couple other news outlets. I think he may have worked for a presidential administration. I'm, I'm not sure. But Peter was talking about journalistic integrity and news judgment and this click economy that we've talked about in the show a bunch. And it got me thinking because while they were talking about what's wrong with journalism, I wanted to spotlight what's right with journalism. And what's right with it is a few different reporters that we've had on the program across the publications, Reuters, Politico, uh, uh, Wall Street Journal. We've had L.A. Times, New York Times correspondents. Um, and I wanted to spotlight a few of them and some of the issues that they were talking about, because this the purpose of this show is to be informative and educational. The first is L.A. Times reporter Nolan McCaskill, who was on the program a few weeks back talking about he's been following everything that's happening in Congress with Biden's agenda. And he's been following the president, obviously, as the president has made these speeches and, and has met with different congressional leaders to try to get some of this stuff passed. And Nolan told us about what it is like hearing somebody tell you something on the record and hear you tell you something off the record. And I think that's really important because at the core of this, how journalists respond to some of this stuff that's happening, right, is a crucial part of this. How we report on things that we know are not true because the person just told me they're not true off air, but on air, they play this little semantic game of, of telling me something else. We also had Ryan Riley on. He's been covering everything in connection with January 6th, all the arrests, what the January 6th selection committee uh, could possibly get into in terms of subpoenas. We just saw Steve Bannon recently uh, arrested for that or turning himself into to, to the government. Um, and then Idris Ali came on the program, fantastic Pentagon correspondent for Reuters, talking about everything that happened in Afghanistan with the U.S. withdrawal. What went right? What went wrong? Excuse me. What went right? What went wrong? I don't know why that's hard to say there. Uh, maybe alliteration aside. But anyway, and Idris is a fantastic reporter. All these guys do great work because what they do at their core is really covering, reporting, and making sure that everything is factually accurate at the three different outlets that they work on, LA Times, Huffington Post, and Reuters. So enjoy some clips from some of these guys that have been on the program. I just interviewed this person. They told me this on the record. And then off the record, it was completely way the opposite way. So now I have, as a journalist, this struggle of saying, I know what he told me on the record, but off the record, he literally did not say, he or she did not say that. So I have to actually report it as the other way. How tough is that balance right now, specifically over the last five years and what we saw from the previous administration? And now what we're seeing with Biden, where there's some kid gloves at certain points with the media. And then there's times where it's like, Oh, man, he went he took Amtrak back to Delaware scandal. You know, Peter Baker's writing about it in New York Times. Like, how tough is this balance line of of, of covering that? Uh, it is tough. I mean, when you look at political, they were reporting like on an email uh, from a Washington Post columnist that, you know, the subject line was off the record and they ended up publishing that in full because they didn't agree to it. You know, I don't know that I would go that far, but. It is tough just trying to do your job. I mean, you want to inform people, you know, you want to be accurate. You don't want to knowingly write something that you know is not true. Uh, but you also want to, you know, respect the relationships that you've built with people. If they tell you something off the record, you know, you want to respect that so that they will continue to talk to you off the record. And, you know, maybe that can inform future stories you're working on. But, you know, maybe you have to bite the bullet uh, for the story you're working on at that time. Uh, it was tough. I mean, people lie all the time publicly. Uh, people may lie off the record they may be more forthcoming off the record uh it's just a, a, a delicate balance it's just part of the game of reporting uh you've got to talk to people i mean that's how we do our jobs we can't just jump out and speculate and say things we have to actually talk to people to have informed opinions we've got to do our coffees you know you know get our drinks with sources talk to people you know keep up with those relationships that's something i'm really trying to do now that i'm new here at, at the la times covering congress for the second time Know, trying to be very organized, you know, trying to be very people oriented, you know, letting people know that I'm a straight shooter. Oh, it's, it's, it's a grind. <laughs> you know, you wish people would just tell you the truth on the record, even on background, that makes it easier. But I think with what we've seen about all the claims of fake news and just people attacking the media to try to raise funds for their own campaigns and their future ambitions, uh, it's, it's tough work, uh, but, you know, we've got to do our job. We want to keep our job. We want to maintain these relationships and, you know, hopefully that we're continuing to develop relationships where, you know, 
a few weeks down the road, maybe we are able to shed some light on some of those off the record conversations by talking to other people who will tell us, you know, the information that we had heard previously. Uh, but at the end of the day, people are trying to win elections every single day. You know, a lot of people are very calculated. You know, they want to know, you know, they'll tell you the truth. They know the truth, but, you know, their constituents believe one thing and those are the people that they're tasked to represent. And so you'll see them say that the election was full of fraud because that's what Trump is saying. And they don't want to be attacked by the former president and you know, the leader of the party and lose their seat in Congress because that's power that they have right now. So power is definitely on the line. It'll, you know, really has an effect on people, especially once they get here and get it. And so everybody here, unless they've announced that they're going to retire or they want to do something else, they want to keep that power. And so you know, when they do say things on the record and then tell you the real thing off the record, that's just the sense of that they want to protect themselves, but they also want to be candid with you. And so that's the way that they're able to do that. So what's the latest you can give us on the January 6th committee, their investigations, where they may go with subpoenas, witnesses upcoming? Yeah, I think that one thing with the January 6th um, committee is going to be really interesting is where they draw the line in terms of those ongoing cases, because there is this ongoing case where if the, if the Justice Department wishes to, they can make the case that we can't turn over this information because it's part of an ongoing investigation. I don't think that's going to be as much of an issue and it hasn't been as much of an issue so far um, in the lead on information about the lead up to January 6th when it comes to um, things that they, they are interested in looking at in terms of the pressure that uh, that Donald Trump was putting on the Justice Department to basically overturn the election. Um, that hasn't been a holdup so far. But I think in terms of these individual cases after January 6th, it might get a little bit messier um, in terms of what they want to, they'll be allowed to or will be willing to turn over because they're going to be very worried about how these cases that are ongoing against these more than 570 defendants, how that's all going to be impacted by that. Um, and it's something that I think they're going to be very conscious of because if there's information that's released through the January 6 uh, select committee, that could be some way impact an ongoing case, whether it be through pretrial publicity that's going to mess with the jury pool, um, or whether it be just unfair to a particular defendant. Um, I think that's something they're going to be they're going to be sort of tiptoeing around during all of this. So it'll be interesting to see, I think, how DOJ decides to approach all that. Um, of course, for the bit more serious cases against sort of the key figures, right? Everyone's always interested in what's going to happen with Donald Trump. Is he going to have any criminal um, liability here? I think that that's something that they're going to be able to share more um, with the uh, the committee on about the lead up to this, because that's such a it's such a difficult case to make, even if there was a case to make um, in terms of federal violations or federal criminal behavior um, by the president. Really what's happening here is the people who acted upon, those sort of low low figures um, who acted upon, the people with the least power who acted upon what Trump was saying are going to end up bearing the brunt of the accountability in this, in this case. It's not going to be the figureheads like Trump and the people with actual power Injuries, you know, for a literacy moment for a second, you know, when we think obviously the Taliban now is the ruling authority in Afghanistan, but you mentioned the organization of Al Qaeda for our listeners, you know, as we think of these two different entities and obviously they're very different, but I go to you to ask, what is the difference between these two organizations? So it's interesting because, well, uh, you know, they are dissimilar and similar in the same, same breath. So obviously this all, you know, 9-11 um, was essentially carried out by Al-Qaeda, not by the Taliban, um, but the Taliban were in the crosshair because they were harboring Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, where the essentially the plotting of 9-11 was done. So, you know, they're intertwined in that way because, um, you know, when the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, they essentially had to kick out the Taliban to get to Al-Qaeda. Um, and, you know, what we've seen over the past couple of years, and this is, you know, very public, according to the UN reports that we've seen over the past couple of years, is both organizations still maintain a level of cooperation, um, and they have for the past couple of years, and there's a lot of concern about what that will mean um, going forward for the United States. You know, those are the similarities. What's dissimilar is kind of what the intention is for each organization. So for the Taliban, it is to essentially run um, Afghanistan, according to Islamic law, right? That they want to be a, a government, essentially. Um, Al-Qaeda is a bit different in that they share some of the same values, but they also want to attack the United States and Western interests, interests 
um, around the world. So the main difference is eventually what they want to do for Al-Qaeda, so for the Taliban, it's run Afghanistan. For Al-Qaeda, it's attack the United States. And so I think we see um, those, um, some of the main differences. And again, another difference is just the number of people in Al-Qaeda. You know, we're, in Al-Qaeda, we're talking maybe low thousands. The Taliban, we're talking 70 to 80,000 people. So it, it's just, a, you know, intention, size is different. Um, but they do maintain some level of um, uh, cooperation. Nick, that's it for us today. Uh, listen, in the coming weeks, we're going to tease up some great stuff. We're going to be talking climate change with a fantastic reporter over at the Daily Beast. Or Benson will be on the program. And in a few weeks, former FBI Assistant Director Frank Figlusi is going to be joining us, really take us into what it's like working at the Bureau and some of the stuff that he's been seeing play out in terms of FBI investigations over the last few weeks so stay tuned for those episodes in the coming weeks uh as always you can check us out ig tiktok twitter at can we please talk podcast can we please talk on twitter follow us on social media email us please folks can we please talk podcast at gmail.com nick is dying to read some emails we've read some reviews from folks okay and leave us a five-star review and comment please but we've read some reviews but we have not gotten and we've gotten some emails of that we're a left left leaning liberal machine obviously we've read that one but we we would like some real emails on some of these topics because some of these things obviously move the needle and if you've got some thoughts you've listened to this program reach out to us can we please talk podcast at gmail.com video clips of all of our interviews are available on youtube.com as always i'm mike leon grateful for the listeners uh and i i echo what mike just said about emailing the show you know send us good stuff we want to read it we want to engage with all of you um or you'll just continue to get into a you know a uh, argument with mike via tiktok <laughs> yeah. uh but but always grateful to be on the show grateful to work with mike um and put forward in front of you all of you the journalists who know what they're talking about because that's what we do at, at cwpt i'm nick Saveri. Let me tell you something. If you really want to get down the rabbit hole of one of our videos and the TikTok battles we've gotten into, just, <laughs> just click on one of those. Go to our TikTok, Can We Please Talk podcast, and just check out any of our clips of some of the rabbit holes of comments. Thank you, everybody, each and every week for listening and watching. We'll see you next time. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.